0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of
1: Rogers News. The watchwords of 2020 have been unprecedented and uncertainty. That's unlikely to change as America faces a few more known unknowns, namely the upcoming presidential election, the post-virus economy, and how inflation may react as we all come out of lockdown. I'm looking forward to diving into all of this with Nathan Sheets, Chief Economist at PGM Fixed Income.
0: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: you So much for coming on. So we'll dive right in. It's been a really interesting election year in that the election hasn't been the main story. (laughs) Recently, though, it's coming more to the forefront. And I'm curious what you're hearing, what you're seeing, and how the market is thinking about the upcoming election.
0: So I think the, uh, the threshold question is, who's going to win? And I think at this stage, uh, the polls are pointing to uh, a Biden victory. But even as I say that, uh, it was also the case that four years ago, the polls were pointing to a Hillary victory. And I think we learned through that episode, and I think the markets have learned through that episode, that it's a mistake to, uh, to count Donald Trump out. So I think what's happening is the markets are thinking about, well, uh, what would a Biden administration look like? And uh, what would Trump 2.0 look like? And then doing kind of a comparison a relative value kind of assessment as to the implications of that for the economy, uh, for firms, for profits, for taxes, and so forth.
1: And what do you think is the biggest fear that a lot of investors may have about a Biden presidency? So I think uh,
0: uh, by far the uh, biggest worry about a Biden presidency is what's going to happen to taxes. Uh, many investors uh, uh, liked uh, Trump's tax cuts and particularly the corporate tax cuts. And Biden's already indicated that, uh, assuming he has sufficient support in Congress, that he's going to raise the corporate tax rate uh, from 21% back up to to 28%. And uh, I think there are fears as to what that will mean for profits, for uh, 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 equity prices, and uh, the functioning of of many of these firms.
1: And it's interesting because I feel like Often when people think there's going to be a Democrat in office, there tends to be this fear of taxes increasing. Though historically, markets have probably, if anything, done slightly better under Democratic administrations. Do you think that this time the fear may be more warranted?
0: Well, I think that on the one hand, uh, that a Biden uh, administration uh, would uh, be focused on and would seek uh, to put through uh, higher taxes, to support uh, a broad kind of expenditure agenda, to address some of the imbalances and uh, inequalities that we're seeing in our economy. But the flip side of that is that no administration is able to do everything they promised when they were running uh, for president. And uh inevitably there are constraints and realities that end up biting. And uh, you know, putting that all together, my expectation is that a Biden administration, again, assuming there's sufficient support in Congress, which is a big question mark, uh would would move forward with uh, tax increases, but maybe not to the magnitude of what's being uh, uh talked about now, maybe it'd be 26% on the corporate tax rate and uh, uh, some, some increases on high income earners, but not to the extent of what they're proposed. Mm-hmm.
1: I found the talk of Biden's talk about tax increases interesting for two reasons. One, because it seems somewhat odd in going into an economic recovery of having this massive crisis potentially wanting to increase taxes, which you would think would offset some of the fiscal stimulus, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. So there is a big question here about how do you phase this and how do you time it? And uh, if uh, Joe Biden is elected and the economy is in the midst of recovery from uh, coronavirus, it could be uh, quite debilitating and a meaningful headwind to the recovery to face significant uh, tax increases. So my expectation is that most likely what an administration with Biden would do is uh, begin with a large fiscal stimulus package, and then over time, talk about tax increases, in some sense, to help pay for some of that uh, uh, expenditure that had already been front-loaded.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, because even though the U.S. is obviously running these massive deficits, as a lot of other countries are, it doesn't seem like there's that much of a, any negative side effects to doing that. So there's no rush to have to close deficits.
0: Uh, that is true in two dimensions. I would say uh, in the, in the near term, uh, we've learned that when we come out of these episodes where there was significant uh, fiscal stimulus, that if policy switches over uh, toward austerity too quickly, it can have a powerful drag on the recovery. And I think there were some countries in Europe, including the United Kingdom, uh, that felt this uh, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. But I think some of this is also true over the longer term. When you look at countries with higher debt levels, it doesn't seem like the markets are charging the more in terms of uh, what they're paying to issue uh, debt, uh, at least within the uh, developed markets, that the uh, the markets are happy uh, to absorb that debt, and uh, there's very little cost associated with it. This kind of gets us into the world of modern monetary theory. And are there any limits to the debts that we that we acquire? I think the answer is eventually. But it's probably still a ways down the road for the United States.
1: And maybe looking at another issue that investors might care about that could be potentially very different, um, depending on who wins, is the trade war or trade in general. So, do you think that there is fear among investors that if if we have a Trump 2.0, that trade tensions may with China or with? our allies could ratchet up far more?
0: Yes. So when the markets think uh, about Biden as president, as I said, I think their major concern is taxes. When they think about Trump uh, in a second administration, the major concern is how far will he go in these trade wars? And my feeling is that uh, what we saw in his first term is likely to be restrained relative to what will come in his second term. And specifically, I think he was restrained by the reality that he had to face the voters in 2020. If that is removed, I can hear President Trump saying as he hikes tariffs and takes other steps uh, on China, you know, folks, this is going to hurt, but this is an existential conflict and it's worth it. And uh, that could have adverse implications uh, for the economy and could be disruptive uh, for the markets. I think the tone of our trading relationships with China, but probably also with Europe uh, during a second Trump administration, is a real concern uh, for me and for the markets more broadly.
1: Trump has definitely seemed to respond to the stock market. <laughs> and when the stock market falls, he gets very nervous. And I do wonder if, in a way, if you had a Trump 2.0, that could be one of the few things that might be able to curtail him. So that is
0: absolutely uh, uh, an accurate description of how his policies have been geared uh, during his first administration. He has followed the stock market. And as his policies have started to uh, unsettle investors too much, then he's kind of pulled back and moderated a bit and i guess the question i have is would he feel the same constraint uh about the stock market if he's reelected, or say well if the market's down for a while that's okay because once we get to the other side of this uh, it's going to be much higher uh, i think he would try to justify it as saying i'm creating opportunity for patriotic U.S. farmers and other U.S. firms that will benefit the corporate sector over, and U.S. workers, over the medium to long run.
1: Now, let's think about a Biden administration. How do you think Biden would handle trade?
0: So, uh, I think the one framing reality for the Biden administration is that given where politics in Washington are today, it's going to be almost impossible for anyone to come in and say, I'm going to be a friend of China. So I think that the relationship with China will remain fraught and tense and challenging. But I don't think that it would get significantly worse than it is now. Uh, And I think how Biden would uh, approach China is very much through a multilateral kind of of approach that uh, the US concerns about openness and China's trade practices and how it's handling some of its technology issues are shared by many other countries around the world. And I think that uh, a Biden uh, administration would work uh, very uh, in a very conscientious and focused way to bring all of those allies and all of those partners together to exert leverage on Xi Jinping. So I think it will be a different approach, a multilateral approach. It's gonna require a lot of hard work to get everybody lined up, but I think it could also be uh, more powerful than the unilateral approach that we've pursued.
1: It may seem like China would welcome a change in the administration, but in a way, having that multilateral approach could actually put a lot more pressure on China.
0: Yeah, so I think that the Chinese authorities in their debates about uh, about this are uh, conflicted about how this, uh, this election uh, should go from their standpoint. Now, whatever they think, they're not going to tell us because whoever they wanted to win, it would be the kiss of death. But uh, on the one hand, I think that Trump is someone that they know And in some sense, his unilateral approaches are creating opportunities for them in the rest of the world. On the other hand, uh, a Biden victory and a Biden approach, I think, is going to be less directly confrontational. And uh, the policy won't be as intense as with Trump, but it's going to be more multidimensional and multilateral and could actually turn up the heat Uh, on China even more, particularly in the sense that the Biden administration would seek to seize the moral high ground from Xi Jinping.
1: Let's now shift from the election to what may be the next president's biggest worry, the post-pandemic economy. One of the things we've really seen in the COVID crisis is this ramping up and highlighting of inequality, both in the health crisis itself and in the economic effect. So I'm wondering how you think this is going to play out in the economy moving forward.
0: So I think uh, inequality is one of the very most important forces that's at work in our economy today. When I think about uh, the weak economic growth and the low inflation that we've experienced over the last decade, I think part of that is a reflection of the distribution of income uh, in our society, that a lot of that income is going to upper-tier uh, households who are saving it, while we have many households in the lower half of the income distribution that, that need more resources. And if they had more resources, would spend it. And it would create demand and inflationary pressure which in this environment that we're in would would be a good thing. So I think it's an important economic force. And it's also going to be a very powerful and important uh, political force. I think we're hearing in a number of different ways, including uh, some of the protests that have occurred in recent months, that people are demanding greater equality uh, in terms of of outcomes, in terms of uh, 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 incomes, in terms of opportunities across the board, and I think that uh, that will be a key factor in the outcome of this election, but I think we will be debating this in various ways for probably at least a decade uh, to come, and we've got a lot of work to do on this issue. I don't think we know how to balance, on the one hand, achieving a more equal, equitable distribution uh, let's say, of income in the economy while at the same time preserving the efficiency of the underlying structure and the productive capacity of the economy? That's a huge question for us. and We've simply got to know more and we've got to do better.
1: Yeah. One of the things I've, I've found just fascinating the last few months is, in a way, we've had this experiment with dramatic fiscal policy, and literal cash infusions. And frankly, I think you can argue they've worked pretty well. And I wonder if that's going to change at all, or whether you think it's going to change at all, the discussion around fiscal policy.
0: I agree uh, with your uh, assessment completely. Uh, One of the key features of the fiscal stimulus that was put into place is that the vast majority of it went to Uh, households in, say, the lower half of the income distribution. And what do they do? They spent it. And that spending has gone a long way to supporting the economy through this period. Uh, Similarly, as Congress has failed to extend the unemployment benefits in particular, but the fiscal stimulus more broadly, who's bearing the brunt of that? It's these lower income households. So I think it has been a test case and experiment in what you can do with targeted fiscal in a kind of a redistributional way. And I, I, I don't see any evidence through this that it's distorted incentives or created underlying problems. So I do think we're learning a lot, uh, even as we speak about how to do this better. But as I said, we still have a long way to go.
1: Yeah. and. One of the other major themes of this crisis has obviously been this work from home shift and another just massive experiment in things that people thought we're going to maybe 10 years from now, people were going to be doing and all of a sudden in a month we're all doing it. So that's another thing I'm curious. How do you think that's going to play out moving forward?
0: So my feeling is that through this episode, we have learned how to do business differently. We've learned how to work differently. We've learned how to operate differently. And I think this will make us more effective, efficient, and productive. On the other side, once uh, someday we're looking at the uh, coronavirus through the rearview mirror. Does that mean that every meeting that I'm now doing uh, virtually that I'm going to do virtually in that new world? No. But the important thing is some of the meetings that I'm doing virtually, I'll continue to do virtually. And that will create time, save me travel and, uh, expenses and, and other kinds of travel costs and allow me to do other things in my life or to do other things in my job, in my career. So I do think that we through this episode we've learned how to utilize these technologies as a society more effectively. And I think that we will reap a, a
1: dividend and
0: benefits from that going
1: forward. I totally agree with that. I, I do, though, potentially see the other side of that is when you look at certain industries, travel obviously that is so reliant on business travel and then commercial real estate. How do you see this shift affecting them?
0: So I think that a corollary to the discussion that we were having is that coming out of coronavirus, there are going to be uh, distinct winners and losers. So when you think about who are going to be the winners, well, the tech sector. Uh, And I think that the equity market being forward-looking has already priced a lot of that in. But we will be even more dependent and tech will even be more central uh, to our economy in the future than it was uh, in the past. I would also say that uh, uh, firms that produce consumer staples are likely to be winners. I think we've learned that regardless of what's going on in the world, there are certain things we need. And many of those things we buy at grocery stores, and they're the essential uh, products of life. And I think those firms are likely to be winners. On the other hand, many face-to-face services I think are in for A profound transformation, and some of these would be. uh, I think air travel is going to look and feel differently uh, for uh, many years to come. Uh, 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 Other kinds of transportation will will probably do leisure differently. Uh, Face to face restaurants, anything that's 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 geared to face to face interaction, I think is going to evolve and change, and some of that. Uh, is likely to migrate uh, online with uh, uh, retail uh, shifting as a great example from bricks and mortar, face to face interactions with a clerk or a store into uh, a virtual world of e commerce.
1: And that brings up this question of consolidation that we've seen as before this crisis, but also certainly during this crisis. So I'm curious how you see that playing out and also what some of the antitrust concerns might be moving forward.
0: So uh, what's happened is that we have some some firms uh, that have been extremely successful in their space. They've competed uh, in, in almost uh, historically unprecedented kinds of ways and uh, have, have grown and uh, are now really quite central to the economy. And I think that they've done that by being dynamic and being innovative. And I think that there is a profound question that now we have to uh, struggle with, and that is, have they become too large? Or alternatively, are there privacy concerns? Mm-hmm. Do, do some of these firms simply know too much about us? And I think these are issues that we will, uh, we will be thinking more about and struggling with as a society. For example, as they get too large, uh, are they uh, impeding other productive firms and weighing on, weighing on productivity growth or impeding investment or resulting in slower economic growth? There's an ongoing debate uh, about many of these uh, issues in the economics literature. And I think a final point here is the, the issues that we're talking about are ones where I think the Trump administration and the Biden administration are likely to take very different kinds of perspectives. Or I think that the uh, Biden administration is likely to tighten up some on antitrust. And uh, uh, that could have some meaningful implications for the evolution of the economy going forward.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me how conversations around antitrust have shifted because you, know, you, you have this move towards it, what affects the consumer. And if consumers aren't negatively impacted, then essentially doesn't matter. But then now you can make this argument of, well, I might not be paying in dollars additionally, but if I'm paying in more and more data, Isn't that also a way that as a consumer, I may potentially be negatively impacted?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that this is, as I said, this is a debate we're having in the United States. And this is also a debate that's happening globally, where uh, I would say in the United States, we're concerned about it. In Europe, they're very concerned about it and have passed some rather binding uh, legislation and regulation and what can be done with personal data. But in contrast, the Chinese uh, seem to be very relaxed. Okay. And I think that we're in a place where there is a risk, where these social differences, it really is kind of deep sociological differences in our societies and our, uh, and our, and our psyches, uh, could end up leading to fragmentation in some of these key sectors and have adverse efficiency implications for the global economy. So I think one of the challenges, and this is a long-run challenge, is not only addressing these issues, but addressing them in a way that's reasonably compatible across various jurisdictions. And we've got that's another place where we've got a lot of work to do.
1: Speaking of places where we have a lot of work to do, let's move to our last topic, inflation. We had another big announcement recently from the virtual Jackson Hole Conference. So maybe I would like you to just start by explaining what exactly happened there. What did Jay Powell say?
0: So uh, Jay Powell announced a flexible average inflation targeting regime for the Federal Reserve. And essentially what it boils down to is the Fed is saying that it plans to hit two percent inflation which has been its target on average over time and i think people might naturally ask well how long when you say over time how long is that how far back are you going to look in determining that and i think that's where the flexible part of flexible average inflation targeting comes into play that the fed says we want to do it on average How we calculate the average is going to depend on how the economy is going at the time and what we feel is appropriate. So I think that what we got in average inflation targeting, uh, as announced by the Fed here, is a nice fusion of the academic kinds of frameworks that Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen espoused when they were at the Fed and the flexibility that Alan Greenspan emphasized when, when he was there. So I really think they kind of thread the needle and ended up with a framework that really emphasizes 2% is our objective. We wanna be there on average. 2% is not a ceiling, but over time, sometimes we'll be above, sometimes we'll be below. And if, we'll be, if we're below for a while, then of course we're gonna to wanna to be above for a while. So I think it's a very intuitive, Uh, 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 approach that incorporates a fair amount of discretion still, which is necessary for monetary policy.
1: I guess the next question would be, if the Fed has had so much trouble getting even close to 2%, how on earth are they going to get above 2%?
0: Well, I think that is the key question for the Federal Reserve. So I think the Fed has made clear that they're going to deploy all of their tools to get there. Are they gonna keep rates low for a long time? Absolutely. Are they gonna purchase a lot of assets and allow their balance sheet to grow further? Absolutely. Are they gonna use forward guidance and make pre-commitments? Well, they did that at their meeting yesterday. Absolutely. Um, So the Fed is there and fully, fully committed. Uh, But the question is, are those tools sufficient to achieve inflation? And I think the answer is, we just don't know. This Mm -hmm. is an open question as to whether those tools uh, are sufficient, that there are some deep structural forces that work. And we've seen them over the last 10 years that are holding back inflation. And my sense is, they're still in place and we uh, will continue to constrain inflation going forward.
1: Well, one of the things, there are obviously a number of things that have kept inflation low, you know, globalization, mechanization, technology. And, and one of the big ones, I think, is to a certain extent, inequality and the fact that there's labor has not had a tremendous amount of power. And I, I wonder if we're getting to a somewhat untenable place with that, especially because of the coronavirus crisis, and whether the push, the I would argue necessary push to get wages up, to get labor a bit more power, could, though, actually push inflation up?
0: So I, uh, I think that there is uh, a legitimate debate uh, for our society to have about uh, unionization. Uh, I think it's certainly possible, and we've seen this in many countries, for labor to be too unionized. Right. But are we at a point now where labor just does not have enough uh, power vis-a-vis employers and vis-a-vis capital, and we would actually land on a better social, broad macroeconomic outcome uh, if some of that was, was rebalanced a bit? Uh, I think the answer to that question may very well be yes. I think it's uncertain, but I can, uh, I can see a case for that line of reasoning. And if one was successful in raising those wages, particularly of some of the lower paid workers, uh, that would uh, put more money in people's pockets. It would create more demand in the economy. Presumably, with more demand, firms would feel a little bit more pricing power and would be able to raise uh, uh, prices rather than just having their margins compressed and would have A stronger economy with more growth and more inflation that the trick the big question we've got to figure out is how do we create more demand the economy has had a shortage of demand over the last at least decade and maybe even even 20 years and putting more money in a sustainable way in the pockets of lower paid workers uh, is one way to do it and it makes a lot of sense as you said Because of the inequality issues that we're struggling with as well.
1: Now, couldn't we potentially have a problem here? If everyone assumes rates will stay low essentially forever, then they, including corporates and Congress, will be incentivized to take on even more debt. But if we're able to achieve what we want and raise wages and inflation, then rates would need to increase. But all of that debt that seemed fine at very low rates may no longer seem so sustainable.
0: So uh, I think that uh, this, is, this is an excellent point, that if we are successful, uh, there could be uh, transition issues that we need to work through. Uh, and higher inflation you know, would bring higher rates. But it would also be happening in an environment of more rapid growth mm-hmm. so that our capacity to be able to pay the debt and service the debt would be uh, increasing uh, proportionately. So I'm optimistic that if we, can, if we can get this thing figured out, that we'll be able to absorb the balance sheet uh, transition. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it is an open issue. It's a uh, concern for the public sector where there are high levels of debt. It's also a concern for the corporate sector where there are high levels of debt, that if they have to start rolling uh, that debt over at higher interest rates, it's going to be a meaningful, a meaningful burden on them. So question marks that it would be happening in a better uh, environment and would be, uh, I would call it a necessary growing pain if we're successful.
1: And what would you say are the real downside risks for this push to try to get inflation up?
0: So I would say the core uh, driver, in my mind, is uh, aging demographics. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of evidence out there that as our societies get older, uh, demand uh, declines. As people approach retirement, they trim their expenditures some, they save more. On the other side of retirement, they trim their expenditure uh, even more, and uh, it results in, in a, a weaker uh, pace of growth and softer inflation. I think we've seen this clearly in Japan over the last 20 or 30 years, and I think we're also seeing it now in the United States and and in Europe. And uh, I just don't think that that force is 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 going to abate. So I would say that's number one on my list of, of worries. Uh, another concern is to the extent that we continue to manage these high debt levels, I think that public and private debt levels, as they currently stand, create uncertainties for households and firms and uh, also uh, uh, weigh on the economy, slow growth, and, uh, and lead to uh, lower inflation. And again, I think Japan's experience uh, highlights uh, those kinds of things. So those are, those are factors that are still there that I don't think are gonna go away. And then a final one that's been very powerful is the advance of technology. Yep. which results in automation it's making us more efficient which is the good thing we've right. got to hope it continues mm-hmm. but the upshot of that has been downward pressure on wages and prices and that's been another factor over the last several decades that has uh, been quite disinflationary
1: i wonder if that brings us back a little bit to earlier parts of our discussion and this idea about fiscal policy and spending and cash infusions that we do want a society where the standard of living is improving, technology is getting better, we're becoming more productive. But if you're not creating jobs, then what do you do? What do you do with a lot of the population?
0: Yes. So as your economy is, is growing, you're having this uh, 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 innovation. Uh, how are the gains shared? And I think that that's what we're back to, is is it creating jobs? Is the wealth being felt broadly in your society? And uh, if the answer to that is no, then uh, you have uh, some serious issues to deal with uh, from a minimum at a public policy level. Now, ideally what you'd be able to do is allow the economy to continue to evolve and grow but to just share it uh, more more equal, uh, equitably. But then I think you get in a world, is there a trade-off mm-hmm. between efficiency and equity? Right. And if there is, then we as a society, and I think this is maybe the bottom line, and in some sense, it may even be the defining thought for the Biden versus Trump, we as a, a society need to make some choices mm-hmm. between efficiency and equity. And where are we going to land uh, on, uh, on, and it's a curve. I hate to say that. The economists think everything's a curve. But where on
1: that curve we want to land. Well, I think that is probably an excellent place to end this discussion with the defining idea of the Biden versus Trump election. So thank you so much. This was great. Very
0: much a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out breakingviews.com and subscribe to our various audio products, including The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Thanks again for listening.